welcome. It's indisputable. I'm your host, Rashad Richie. Good to be with you. We have a lot on the agenda today. Breaking down news of the day with me, my contributor, none other than my brother from another mother, the mayor of Enfield, North Carolina, Mayor Mondale Robinson. And also, we have in the bullpen, he has a new book, Dr. Jonathan Metzel. This is going to be quite fascinating. He's a psychiatrist, actually chair of the department, Vanderbilt University, has a new book, and it's quite fascinating. Top story of the day, hell of a thing, Oklahoma says they're going to send National Guard troops to Texas in order to basically engage in a civil war. Now, they're not going to contextualize it this way, but I guarantee you that is exactly the prerequisite measure here. 25 Republican governors currently agree with Texas as they stand against federal agents at the border. Now, the question is, does a state have the right to engage in bilateral agreements contrary to the United States government? The answer is going to surprise you. Here's the first clip. There, there's rumblings that Joe Biden should or may actually federalize the National Guard, take that power away from Greg Abbott. Let's say this showdown, I mean, this, that's what it is. It's a showdown. It's a showdown of power and loyalties and constitutionality. Let's say he does that. How many people say, no, you know what? Screw you, Biden administration. And how many people stay and fight with Texas versus the federal things? And does that put us on course for a force on force conflict? I mean, right right now, you've got uh, the federal agents that are cutting the wire, and then you've got the Texas National Guard on orders to put up wire. I mean, this is a this is a counter uh, uh, a powder keg worth of uh, tension. So it's very uh, it, it it's it's a very weird situation. We certainly stand with uh, with Texas on their right to defend themselves, um, but Biden's going to be in a tough situation. So, in other words, he's going to try to federalize these troops. In other words, put them on federal orders. And so now their allegiance technically goes to the president of the United States instead of the governor. Uh, wrong, sir. Uh, the allegiance is already to the US Constitution predicated on the position at hand. Additionally, Biden somewhat has placed himself in this position because he should have federalized all National Guards when the threat came from the Satan of Florida, that he was going to do something very similar. Also, look at the budget. National Guard troops are partially funded by the federal government, okay? He could just stop paying them. All right, here's another one. As you can see on the big wall right there, 25 Republican governors are backing him, including, as you zoom in on Oklahoma, there he is, Kevin Stitt, the governor of Oklahoma. He's up on the big wall and he's live right now from Oklahoma. Governor, good morning to you. Hey, good morning. Thanks for having me on. You bet. Okay, so uh, why have you and 23 or 24 other governors, all Republicans, said uh, we're going to help uh, Mr. Abbott out in Texas? Well, I mean, it, it's pretty simple for us, for Oklahomans. I think for most Americans, uh, th this is just common sense. In Texas, there's 28 ports of entry, and it's already a federal law that it's illegal to enter anywhere but those points of entry. I mean, the last time I flew to Mexico, uh, I had to land at an airport and show them my passport. And so right. the fact that the federal government, Biden is cutting razor wire, 
it just it just makes no sense at all. And so, yes, we have the right to defend our country against invasion. And sir, you are the governor of one state, sir. You said the issue in the beginning of that interview. It is a federal law, which means the jurisdiction falls to the Department of Justice. Let's get into it in a statement posted on Truth Social. I'm giving you a narrative and I'm showing you the buildup to their proposed solution. On Truth Social, Trump accused President Joe Biden of, quote, aiding and abetting a massive invasion. I want you to remember the word invasion. It's a reason he's saying the word invasion. It is a reason that the governor of Oklahoma, Kevin Stitt, said the word invasion. Invasion of migrants illegally crossing the border. He also criticized the Department of Justice lawsuits against Texas, one of which was in the news this week after the Supreme Court granted an emergency appeal by the federal government to allow Border Patrol to cut razor wire placed by Texas officials on the banks of the Rio Grande. Quote, here's what Trump said, we encourage all willing states to deploy their guards to Texas to prevent the entry of illegals and to remove them back across the border. Trump is now actively calling on governors to stand against the United States of America. In addition to that, it was in fact weeks after, weeks after the Supreme Court granted an emergency appeal by the federal government to allow for Border Patrol, federal agents to cut razor wire. Why? Because of the humanitarian crisis it creates on the border. They are well within their constitutional right of enforcement to do so in lieu of the danger it presents and the liability it creates for the American government. Now, Biden is not forcefully pushing back, damn a lawsuit, sir, damn a lawsuit. These cats do not respect the US Supreme Court. They do not respect federal agents. They do not respect jurisdictional authority. They may respect the fact that you have the ability to cut off their paycheck. They may respect that. Or through executive action, go ahead and nationalize all National Guards. It is codified inside of the statute that you have the ability to do this. My point is, the reason why people support Trump, the reason why Trumpites go so hard for Trump is because they believe, given the same situation, Trump would have already done what I just said Biden should do now. There's more. 50 Oklahoma National Guard members. I'm reminding you of 2023 now. 50 Oklahoma National Guard members who deployed to the US-Mexico border in support of the Texas Military Department's Operation Lone Star returned to Oklahoma Tuesday, August 29th, 2023. 2023, comprising both Army National Guard soldiers, Air National Guard airmen, and Oklahoma National Guard members were stationed at security points alongside Texas National Guard members to help identify and report suspicious activity related to illegal immigration and drug trafficking to local law enforcement and US Border Patrol. 
I said last year when this happened, this is their test run. They're going to see what is the legal, what is the enforcement response to them sending 50. Not much. That was their test play. So now it's in the news that the governor is saying he's going to send troops. He already did in 2023. It already happened. Okay. Now, let's go to the US Constitution, Clause 3. What does the Constitution say about this? Clause 3 acts requiring consent of Congress. Quote, no state shall, without the consent of Congress, lay any duty of tonnage, keep troops or ships of war in time of peace, enter into any agreement or compact with another state or with a foreign power or engage in war. Now, before I go to the next line of the Constitution, it clearly says no, 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 and absolutely not. And then it says something else, unless, unless actually invaded or in such imminent danger as will not admit of delay. That simply means if you can make a case for invasion, a state can make a case to go to war. That is what it says in the Constitution. This is the reason why these men are utilizing the terminology invasion. And that is why 25 governors have already signed on to this madness. A woman stabs her boyfriend to death, 100 stabs, kills him. She gets community service. She gets probation. She avoids jail time, put it at full mass. Unbelievable story, but it happened. 32-year-old Brian Spetcher, a California woman who fatally stabbed her boyfriend more than 100 times during what prosecutors called a cannabis-induced. Now, I want you to understand what's happening here. Case law is now established, cannabis-induced psychosis. This took place in 2018. She has been spared prison time per a judicial ruling last Tuesday. She was sentenced to two years of probation, according to Ventura County Superior Court records. It was last month when Brian was convicted. It was last month when she was convicted in 2018 fatal stabbing of Chad Omela. So Chad was a man that she was dating for several weeks, not months, not years, but weeks. Ventura County Star reported the testimony showed she stabbed Chad more than 100 times. And then, according to the document, stabbed herself. After the sentence was handed down by the County Superior Court Judge David Worley, that was Tuesday, Spetcher and her family cried tears of relief. The Ventura County Star reported while the victim's father said the sentencing set a dangerous precedent, quote, He just gave everyone in the state of California who smokes marijuana a license to kill someone. That's what Sean Amelia said, according to the outlet. 
The sentence was handed down nearly four hours after Spetcher went to Amelia's apartment in Thousands Oaks, where they took multiple hits from four years, excuse me, four years after, where they took multiple hits from a bomb loaded with marijuana. The Ventura County DA said in a statement last month, quote, Spetcher had an adverse reaction to the marijuana and suffered from what experts called cannabis-induced psychotic disorder, according to the statement. During that psychotic episode, Spetcher stabbed Mr. Omelia multiple times, killing him. Police officers who responded to the apartment found him lying in a pool of blood with Spetcher screaming hysterically with a knife still in her hands. Before the officers could disarm her, Spetcher plunged the weapon, a long serrated bread knife, into her own neck. The district attorney said in a statement, officers used a taser and multiple baton blows before they were finally able to disarm her. Authorities said he was pronounced dead at the scene by paramedics. She was ultimately convicted by a jury of involuntary manslaughter because they purchased the story that the defense uh, permitted, uh, promoted, and the DA permitted. The Ventura County Star reported that the day before Tuesday's hearing, family and friends of the deceased marched in front of the county government center carrying signs that said 108 stab wounds is a serious crime. And Judge Worley do the right thing. Her lawyer, Bob Schwartz, said he was pleased with the ruling. The outlet reported Judge Worley did the right thing did the right and courageous thing, the attorney said. Have you ever heard of cannabis-induced psychosis being the reason you cannot be guilty of a crime afterwards? Let me explain it another way. So in law school, we learn about these particular crimes that are committed when you are not in your right state of mind. Alcohol induced crimes such as a DUI, right? The alcohol is the reason you were swerving or probably committed manslaughter because you killed somebody, you were drunk. Why is it that we don't say alcohol induced psychosis? Because the moment you decided to engage in drinking, knowing that you had to drive back to the house. The moment you decided to engage in the conduct, you took full responsibility of the permeation of action that may happen afterwards, given your knowledge of what the chemical can do to the human body. And because of that prerequisite knowledge, we call that to be reasonable. Because of that reasonable knowledge that you have, there's a reasonable expectation that you would understand that something adverse could happen. And because of that, you are then thus responsible for what takes place from your body, even if you do not form a memory of it completely, or maybe you did not do it intentionally. Maybe you thought the light was green, but it was red, etc. But somehow, they have found a way to stretch the law to such a degree that a person who voluntarily engages in smoking cannabis, which is not a crime in my opinion. It is not a big deal. 
until you kill somebody. A person is dead, this defense has been utilized successfully, and it opens the door. Here's the thing, you know good and damn well it won't be applied fairly. It will not have equivocation here because a black male who smokes marijuana and ends up committing a traffic offense, it doesn't matter what kind of psychosis he's in because of the marijuana, that person's going to jail. This is a whole human being who has died. All right, uh, Mr. Mayor, this is one of the most extreme cases. I mean, literally, she got community service. The two years probation, not even really actionable because the reporting mechanism is very soft. So she really only got community service for this um, crime that she is convicted of, by the way. Yeah, this is I, when I when I when I was reading this story, it blew my mind. I couldn't even fathom sitting next to someone who stabbed a family member of mine a hundred times and hearing the judge saying he's satisfied or they are satisfied with this person getting simple uh, probation and community service. Unbelievable. And as you said, said it elo- 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 eloquently, and her father's mistake is uh, everybody that smoked marijuana in California will not have a license to kill because black people, brown people will not no. ever see this type of justice or injustice in this case. Trump prosecutor finding Willis Fulton County. First motion filed, nothing there. Second motion, I must say, there is some there there. I'm going to break down the background. All right, let's put it up full mass. I've been reporting on this since day one. Let me give you the full story. Fulton County, Georgia, finding Willis is prosecuting co-defendant Michael Roman. He's the co-defendant in the case where 19 individuals were arrested, indicted by a grand jury charged with trying to basically overthrow democracy. So former President Trump is now joining the co-defendant Michael Roman to dismiss Fulton County DA Fonnie Willis and the special prosecutor Nathan Wade from the case accusing the DA of stroking quote racial animus in the Georgia election interference case. Now, remember the first motion filed was about what? Nathan Wade having a personal and perhaps romantic relationship with DA Fonnie Willis. Which by the way, if if true, that is basically an office policy violation of Fulton County. Not a legal statutory violation anywhere. There are two reasons that you file a motion. And two elements that will allow it. Either A, you have a basis of law, basis in law, or B, you have a basis in fact. And one of those dynamics adversely impacts the rights of your client as a defense attorney. So you have no basis in law. There's nothing illegal about an office romance. So there's no basis in law for the motion. There was no basis in fact presented in the motion. As a matter of fact, it says contrary to it. It literally says it did not have any evidence to support this other than sources that were not named, that were credible, told them this. You have no basis in law, you have no basis in fact. The motion, in my opinion, should have been summarily dismissed um, on that premise alone. When the motion was filed, the genesis and the end was for one thing, to get the record unsealed of Nathan Way's divorce which was taking place in another county called Cobb County. They successfully 
did this. They were able to change the narrative, get the divorce proceedings unsealed. Documents have been available for days now, hundreds of documents. You know what? Not one mention of DA Fonnie Willis, just as she said in her motion of response. She said, I have no unique knowledge of their marriage nor divorce. I should not have to be involved in this, okay? So that motion should be settled. She should be exonerated. However, while that motion was pending judication, DA Fonnie Willis went to Bethel AME Church and said this. Perfect child, I'm a little confused. I appointed three special counsel as is my right to do. Paid them all the same hourly rate. They only attacked one. I hired one white woman, a good personal friend and great lawyer. A superstar, I tell you. I hired one white man, brilliant, my friend and a great lawyer. And I hired one black man, another superstar, a great friend and a great lawyer. Oh Lord, they gonna be mad when I call them out on this nonsense. First thing they say, oh, she gonna play the race card now. But no God, isn't it them who's playing the race card when they only question one? Isn't it them playing the race card when they constantly think, I need someone from some other jurisdiction in some other state to tell me how to do a job I've been doing almost 30 years. I will explain the reason why that statement may actually get the DA in trouble, all right? Put up the picture for a mask, Michael Roman. Remember, Michael Roman is the guy who's currently on trial. He's the why. He's the individual who has been indicted by a grand jury. Trump filed a motion on Thursday to adopt and supplement Roman's motion filed on January 8th that accused Willis and Wade of an improper clandestine relationship and profiting significantly from his prosecution at the taxpayer expense, all right? Now, the motion filed on behalf of President Trump seeks to hold District Attorney Willis legally accountable both for misconduct alleged in the motion filed by Mr. Roman, as well as her extrajudicial public statements falsely and intentionally injecting race into the case. There's more. In doing so, according to their narrative, DA Willis violated, this is the motion they filed, her special responsibilities of a prosecutor under the Georgia Rules of Professional Conduct. Her attempt to foment racial animus and prejudice against the defendants in order to divert and deflect attention away from her alleged improprieties calls out for the sanctions of dismissal and disqualification. That's what Trump attorney Steve Sadow said. Now, the motion specifically addresses the actions of Willis on January 14th during the Martin Luther King Jr. holiday weekend. According to the motion, Willis, quote, repeatedly and inappropriately injected race into the case and stoked racial animus during a widely publicized speech at the historic Bethel AME Church, including asking God why the defendants were questioning 
why she hired a black man and why a black female Democrat's judgment isn't good as a white male Republican. The motion claims that the assertions by Willis will result in substantial prejudice toward the defendants. Now, here's why this part is important. In the second motion, they're able to connect how this could impact the defendant. The first motion, it was a reach. And most judges would have said dismissed on the premise presented. There is no statement here that's rooted in statute or in fact. As a matter of fact, it lacks both. So you can bring me another motion when you have at least one of them. Those are the rules, gentlemen. That could have easily been said, but this is such a high profile case that I believe political pressure is at play here on multiple levels. All right, so now they're connecting the second motion directly to a defendant's right. This is different. It says the motion also claims the DA. Um, the motion claims that the assertions by Willis resulted in substantial prejudice toward the defendants. The motion also claims that the DA is seeking racially based sympathy for her self-inflicted quagmire. According to the motion, Willis's conduct is a violation of the Georgia rules of professional conduct that say a prosecutor must refrain from making comments that have substantial likelihood of heightening public condemnation of the accused. The motion also points out that the awesome power to prosecute should never be manipulated for personal or political profit. Okay, so let's go down the timeline. The attorney for Mr. Roman files basically a frivolous motion. That frivolous motion is filed on the last day you can file a pretrial motion. It lacks one of the two elements, it lacks both elements, it lacks none of the elements required for a motion to proceed. It did not get summarily dismissed. In the midst of it still being decided, Fonnie Willis makes a public comment that seemingly connects back to the motion that has not been adjudicated. According to the rules for prosecutors, you have a special code of conduct for prosecutors in the state. They cannot do such things, okay? Doesn't mean it doesn't happen sometimes, of course it does. But they can't do it based on the rules, right? Rules have to be enforced. And so she makes this comment, there has to now be a defense to this, but it opens up the opportunity to have her removed. Now remember, the Georgia legislature passed a new law to regulate DAs last year. You gotta see how they play chess and we play checkers. They passed a new law last year to regulate the conduct of DAs, to remove them under certain rules violations. They now have almost all of the ingredients they need in order to enact that law. And this year, they have already presented a new law to strengthen the law to regulate DAs from last year. Do you see how they move? They are evolving, ladies and gentlemen, and we are still reacting. They are making moves that coincide statute, policy, and action to converge at the right point in order to get a victory. You see, regardless of the politics involved, they're doing something that Democrats are not doing or left-leaning individuals are not doing or progressives may not be doing a good enough job at, and that's working together. They're working together and this is what it looks like. I do hope she's able to make an affirmative defense to this motion because you see, they're afraid of finding Willis prosecuting them because she she's willing to do it. You get a special prosecutor in there, he's probably going to take a plea deal or perhaps even drop the case altogether.
takes the picture. I don't know why you're getting so upset. Because you're an idiot. I'm an idiot. Yeah. Okay. Everybody else leaves the fucking package Dude. at the door. All right? Dude, and I. They read the sign and they take a picture and it's right by the fence. But not you. You're an idiot. Give me my package and get the fuck out of my property. Come on. You ready? You gonna leave the package? You gonna go? Are you done? You wanna call the manager? Are you done? Got Dude, it. take a breath. Seriously. You're agitating me. Get the f out of here. Dude, you, you were agitated before I came here. So. Guy, take a picture of the package. And I'm bringing it back. I'm not delivering it. Okay, then let's call Amazon and call we'll fucking Amazon. Start Dude, like, you don't. I don't need your. Like that's crazy. You almost came in and got attacked by a dog. I didn't that, that dog right there. Yeah, that's that gonna attack one is me. mean. Okay, it's my house. I dictate. Yeah. Get off my property. Get off my property. Give me packages. There's actually more video, so what you just saw was a physical attack. There's more. Dude, don't touch are you, me. Are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? Get off my, kidding me? Get off my property. Yo, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not I'm, Oh my God, I'm calling the police let's, let's right do now. Let's do it, let's I'm, do it. Don't touch no, me. Dude, hit me. Yeah, love you it. hit me. Go ahead. Yeah, get the out of here, I'm calling the cops. If you stop shaking, you can call the police. Yeah, uh, let's put it up full mass here. All right, so first of all, sir, you mean to tell me that's what you were wearing inside of your home by yourself? Where'd you get that outfit from? Second, if your goal is to get the package, if your goal is to actually just get the package in your hand, you get in your own way by attacking the person delivering the package. Now, let me explain why he's upset according to the narrative, all right? There's a place on the property that basically says, all right, enter over here, not over there, something like that. Uh, obviously, the delivery guy didn't see this. And there's a very small fence, a very small gate. He steps over it in order to deliver the package. But there's a dog there, all right? Um, or dogs, mildly aggressive, but didn't attack anybody. So the homeowner is upset because the delivery driver decided to deliver the packages based on what he assumed to be the place of entry, uh, putting himself in danger, by the way, uh, to deliver the package because he voluntarily still went there to do so. Um, naturally, this is an extreme reaction to somebody who may have made an honest mistake in where to deliver the package. All right, Mr. Mayor, this guy needs to meditate and chill. And change clothes. I mean, like you- <laughs> and change his outfit. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> right. Man, yeah. I could, this is the this is unbelievable. Like we we find reasons. I, I but what, here's what we miss, and this is important to the work that we do. You know, doc, out in the out in the field with Black Male Voter Project, we send black men out to have conversations with black men at their house. The yep. first thing we tell them is, if someone is agitated or seem agitated, leave, thank them, and just leave. Because what this what this driver was aware of. Is absolutely right. This guy was agitated before he got there. Yeah. Whatever was going on with that cool outfit that he had on, <laughs> right? He was already over the edge, and he just took it out on his driver. And like you said, the quickest way to get this package is to say, "Hey, man, 
listen, use this inches, don't use this one. Also, this dog might bite you. Yeah, they show his purposes. I don't want that. And that would have been it. This, yep. this super strong energy is unbelievable. I can't, people continue to say that this is the new normal. If this is a new normal, what's the new normal response? I mean, right. this, this just seems like a dev ticket waiting to happen. Yeah, uh, we used to call this self-check, right? You, you literally made yourself your own enemy in the situation at hand. A medical doctor says he doesn't want patients if they don't agree with his values, it won't be good for them. Talking about the patients. Put it up for a mask. Um, this is the doctor, all right? And you may notice him. You may recognize him. Here's the video. I don't want a patient who doesn't align with my values because in general, it's a relationship. And if you're don't align and it's not going to be a good outcome. It, no matter how good my surgery is, yeah, it, it, it's just not going to work. Wow. All right, let's get into it. The doctor featured in the video has been identified as New York-based plastic surgeon, Dr. Ira Savetsky. Based on the video being reposted online, it appears the video was originally posted on his IG page. It appears to have been taken down since. The statement disturbed users online due to Dr. Savetsky and his wife Lizzie doing media appearances and social media posts around the Israel Hamas conflict. Here's an appearance they did on Newsmax. Joining us now is digital influencer and activist Lizzie Savetsky and board certified plastic surgeon Ira Savetsky. Lizzie, want to get your thoughts on the latest information on Congresswoman Rashida Tlaib. This is no surprise to any of us who have been following her closely. I mean, we're talking about a woman who has the Palestinian flag in her office and not the American flag. Rashida Tlaib deserves everything that's coming her way. And I really hope that APAC has success with what they're trying to do. Well, let's certainly hope here. Ira, I want to ask you, you've recently posted video on your Instagram of some of the patients that you've seen for plastic surgery right here. You've extended your complimentary services to any survivors of the October 7th tax here. Why are you doing what you're doing here? All of us are looking at ways on how to give back and how to, can we show support? Because I think us as a community sometimes are feeling helpless with our brothers and sisters in Israel. So any little thing that I could do, whether it be provide plastic surgery services or consultations for people who are victims of anti-Semitic hate crimes, you know, it's a way for me to, to give back. It's the least I could do. There's more, put it up. So Lizzie made this post about MLK and Zionism. The best leader in modern times knew anti-Zionism was anti-Semitism. Do you? Dr. King made a point of consistently publicly declaring his allyship with Israel and the American Jewish community. I wish he were alive today to whip our divided worlds into shape. He is a personal hero of mine whose work I have studied in great detail, lies. I have truly devoted my life to trying to live Dr. King's message of love, unity, and fighting the peace fight, the peaceful fight to 
call out hate and spread truth. Today and every day, I am grateful for this man praying for a better tomorrow, uh, Dr. King. Not with a black fist, um, but you know. So the reality is, Ernest King, his daughter, she has commented on this because multiple celebrities decided to say the same thing. And she said, no, you all are completely incorrect. You all are wrong. Our father would have been standing with, with the Palestinians. And Dr. King did, in fact, criticize the Israeli government and said they needed to leave the occupied territory. He said this out of his own mouth. Somehow that gets lost in translation. I'm surprised, Lizzie. You said you've been studying Dr. King for years. Prior to the controversy involving the couple, according to page six, Lizzie Savesky was set to be part of the Real Housewives of New York cast, but had a controversial conversation with co-star Brian Whitfield, where they discussed the power of racial slurs. Page six was told that Whitfield, who was half black, used the N-word during the call. But rather than using the term N-word, she said the word it represents in full. We're told that Savesky got the impression that Whitfield planned to tell other cast members that Savesky had, had also used the N-word during the call. Sources said Savesky's husband, the good doctor, was outraged and reported the alleged incident to the show's producer. But we're told that when he recounted the call, Ira also said, the actual word rather than saying the N word. We hear he later apologized, but the damage was done. And we're told that that's when conversations began about the pairing exiting the show. Prior to that report, Lizzie Savesky had left the show before she'd even wrapped her first season, saying that she suffered a wave of anti-Semitism. And while page six heard there was more to the story, production insiders downplayed other drama beyond the online bullying. Um, fascinating. Let's go back to the ethical dynamic here. These two individuals are in their own universe, obviously. But a medical doctor having an absolute duty, a legal duty to do no harm is saying that if you do not align with his values, he doesn't want you as a patient. Now, how do you know their values, Doc? Is it what they proclaim on an application? Are you asking or requiring that information? Uh, that's illegal. Is it a prerequisite to service? Uh, you need to check with your board certification. That's a no-no. Cannot deny based on religion. So what are you saying? Why is it that you have not been investigated for these comments that are contrary to the boards that govern you? All right, Mr. Mayor, hell of a thing, but he said it. Listen, I, I mean, first of all, this plastic surgeon who has turned his wife into a, a faceless moving emoji <laughs> is blowing my mind. Like the entire time she was talking, I couldn't even relate because right. her facial features don't move. Right. Like, who are you communicating with? Uh, so listen, it, my, those are my problems, right? Y'all should come out to me, not the show. Dr. Richie did not say any of that. Oh, no, I, but I, I, I do co-sign on it, though. Yeah. All right, go ahead. And listen, brother, let's be clear. I am so tired of hearing this fake quote by King. 
It was said in 67 that it was written in an August letter to one of his anti-Zionist friends. This letter has never been substantiated. It's, they can't find it. They said it was in a book. King didn't make this quote, but King was extremely clear about, yes, Israel has a right to exist, yeah. but Palestine does too. Yep. And the Palestinian people cannot be subjugated as second class people. So like this, I am just tired of this, like misquoting of Dr. King and how all these people want to be the king that had a dream, but didn't read the full five lines that followed that dream and really don't live out that dream right now. And I believe just like King then, King living now would be at 20 percent popularity. When that man was killed, that was his popularity with white Americans. And I still think if you believe in the things that King fought for then you would have to say that right now, King living, he would be ostracized just like BLM is. I can't, I can't take this, this nastiness. Also, if I was anybody that this guy did surgery on and it was botched and I'm not Jewish or he don't believe in that I'm Jewish, I need to talk to him in the court. Because this <laughs> right. is a dangerous statement. Very dangerous. I mean, it expresses significant um, racial and cultural discrimination. Uh, that can be utilized in a legal proceeding if he is sued. A cop, a sergeant, that's a supervisor, was arrested for violence. Put him up full mass here. Hell of a thing. 48-year-old Sergeant Sean Bowling, an Oakland, California police sergeant, is now in custody. On domestic violence charges, Bowling was arrested by the um, by the county sheriff's office Thursday and booked into the jail at 5 a.m. on one count of battery of a spousal. KTVU Fox 2 reports that as of Friday night, Bowling is still detained. His bail is set at twenty thousand. Now I got to tell you, that is a very high bail for a misdemeanor charge, which makes me believe there is something way more to this charge and the story, all right? I'm in an email, Oakland police said they are aware of the arrest and are collaborating with our law enforcement partner. Fox 2 notes that without naming him, OPD said Bowling was placed on paid administrative leave June 2023, but they did not say why, uh, why as it remains an ongoing personnel matter. Bowling is scheduled to be arraigned in the Superior Court. Bowling also, well, he was arrested by the Stockton police October, 20, uh, October 21st, 2023 uh, for DUI. So he was arrested then too. Um, Oakland police, uh, the interim. Oakland Chief of Police, Darren Allison, uh, made, uh, they have not made any formal comments on the incident. So you got a guy who has multiple arrests, he's enforcing arrest. And then he gets this, uh, you know, 5 a.m. charge of a misdemeanor, but he gets a $20,000 bond for the misdemeanor, which is a felony bond. I mean, that, that's, a, that's a significant amount of money. That's typically a felony price. And remember, it's in lieu of coming back to court. So somehow, the judge or the prosecutor who made the argument, they believe this guy's a risk to not even come back to court if you're going to say $20,000 for a misdemeanor. Uh, Mr. Mayor, you understand these uh, normative rules, right? You're mayor of a major city. This is yeah. quite abnormal, $20,000 for a cop, for a cop not to sign uh, what's called on recognizance, right? The, the signature bond, for him not to get a signature bond. 
in a misdemeanor case is quite abnormal. What say you? I, I think there's a long history that we don't know about about this. Right. Yeah. We already know across this country, police officers, according to uh, uh, South Florida, University of South Florida, police officers are more likely to commit domestic violence than regular population. They're at 28% of police officers and the general population is 16%. This guy seems like he might be a repeat offender. Yeah, we will give you updates. I guarantee you something to that $20,000 marker. There he is, Vince McMahon, um, finally, no more. No power, not on, not on the board, cannot make decisions, cannot influence decisions with WWE. Who took him out? Slim Jim. I will explain. In an update, Vince McMahon has resigned from WWE and his parent company, TKO, following allegations of battery and sex trafficking from a former employee. Sex trafficking now. This is a different level of perversion than the initial report. McMahon, quote, has tendered his resignation from his positions as TKO executive chairman and on the TKO board of directors. He would no longer have a role with TKO Group Holdings or WWE, stated WWE president Nick Khan in an email to staff late Friday, just before 8.30 p.m. Eastern. Now, I'm going to tell you what sparked this. So in a statement of his own, McMahon said that, quote, I stand by my prior statement that Ms. Grant's lawsuit is replete with lies, obscene, made up instances that never occurred and is a vindictive distortion of the truth. I intend to vigorously defend myself against these baseless accusations and look forward to clearing my name. However, as TKO noted in a statement after the lawsuit, Mr. McMahon does not control TKO, nor does he oversee the day-to-day operations of WWE. In other words, he can't just appoint himself back to the company board like he could last time. Indeed, Khan's note seemed to suggest and McMahon is actually gone for good this time. There had been some indications that McMahon was already stepping back from the business after the sale of TKO. After closely overseeing WWE Creative, he officially handed control over control over the product to Paul Triple H Levesque, the former wrestler who is also his son-in-law, keeping it in the family. Last year, McMahon sold some 700 million in TKO stock. While the lawsuit was explosive, McMahon had been grappling with other legal issues. Last summer, federal agents served a search warrant on his home and issued a subpoena and an investigation connected to the WWE misconduct claims. Claims. So this is the possible reason why he resigned. Um, let's put it up. Yeah, snap into a slim jam. Longtime WWE sponsor, Slim Jim previously paused its promotional activities with the wrestling outfit in light of what it called, quote, disturbing allegations. So they took their money back. Against its longtime leader, Vince McMahon, on last Friday, Slim Jim was the lead sponsor of last Saturday's Royal Rumble show. So the uh, Slim Jim company and the Conagra brands, this is a the jerk uh, maker or jerky maker, has been affiliated with the pro wrestling company since the 1980s. So shortly after the sponsorship news was emerging late in the day Friday, McMahon immediately resigned from everything. Slim Jim then resumed its WWE sponsorship after he resigned, following the exit of Vince McMahon from his executive role, just in time for the Royal Rumble show, literally.
all of the lawsuits, all of the allegations of sexual assault, sexual harassment, now human sex trafficking. None of that took out McMahon. Who did it? Slim Jim. Wow. Mayor thoughts. You know what you know what the story made me think of and how disgusting it reminded me of when people don't take accountability. First thing, those those charges are horrendous. Secondly, when corporations say they can't, they can't be powerful, they can't make other people fall in line. Mm. When I'm talking about when something happened to black people and they still support mm. industries, That's this right. is a lie. Slim Jim just put them as a lie. This just made them a lie, right? Anybody can anybody that's donating so much money or putting so much money in the NFL can make can hold them accountable. CTE and also what's going on with Colin Kaepernick, if they choose to. Reminds Very me how awesome. high America's tolerance is for black suffering. That's all this did. Well said, dear brother. 100 percent accurate. All right. Dr. Yusuf Salam, council member now, dear friend of mine as well. Dear friend of the mayor's. He was pulled over, likely profiled. We got to talk about it. Here's the video. Roll that back one for me, too. Can roll your back window, please. Yeah, I'm Officer Protector from the 2 6 Precinct. I'm Council Member Salam. Council Member? This district, district now. Oh, okay. Have a good one. Yeah, you're, you're working, right? All right, take care, sir. Dr. Salam, Councilman Salam is saying, okay, basically, why, why did you pull me over? What's the reason for the stop? The officer does not give him an answer. All right, let's get into it. Put it up for a mass. Per CBS News, New York. Newly elected city council member Dr. Yusuf Salam, who was wrongfully convicted and imprisoned in the Central Park 5K, says he was stopped by police without explanation on Friday evening. The incident comes as Mayor Eric Adams continues his effort to get some city council members to support his veto of the How Many Stops Act. Let me explain that act quickly. That act that the mayor is against, all right? Basically says, listen, you all, talking about the police, you have to um, document every single interaction, all right? We have to be meticulous about the record keeping now. Um, The measure is intended to increase police transparency by requiring NYPD officers to document any encounter they have for investigative purposes, including the apparent race, gender, and age of the people they interact with. The city council passed the bill in December. Adams vetoed the bill saying it would amount to drowning officers in unnecessary paperwork when they should be out on the street keeping us safe, end quote. So city council speaker Adrian Adams has moved to override the veto and the council meeting on the bill has been set for Tuesday. Speaker Adams said the measure, police transparency, is a prerequisite to public safety because it fosters a community trust that's necessary to make our neighborhoods safer. Meanwhile, Mayor Adams invited city council members to participate in uh, in an NYPD ride along Saturday, but Salam said he would not participate because of the police stop that you just saw. In a statement, Salam said he was driving with his family when he was pulled over. Quote, I introduced myself as Councilman Yusuf Salam and subsequently asked the officer why I was pulled over. 
Instead of answering my question, the officer stated, we're done here and proceeded to walk away. The fact that the officer did not provide a rationale for the stop, which would have only been legal at level three with reasonable suspicion or higher as required for vehicle stops, calls into question how the NYPD justifies its stops of New Yorkers and highlights the need for greater transparency to ensure they are constitutional. He continued, quote, this experience only amplified the importance of transparency for all police investigative stops because the lack of transparency allows racial profiling and unconstitutional stops of all types to occur and often go unreported. The NYPD says the stop was proper because the car's windows were tinted beyond the legal limit. So let me read what the NYPD said, quote, an officer pulled over a blue sedan with a Georgia license plate for driving with dark tint beyond legal limits, a violation of New York state law. The officer approached the vehicle, identified himself and asked the driver to roll down his windows. The driver complied and identified himself as council member Yusuf Salam, performing official duties, at which point the officer advised him to have a good night. This entire account is corroborated by body worn camera footage and the vehicle report. The officer followed all proper procedures, including procedures that were put in place after Detective Russell Timoshenko was shot and killed through tinted windows in 2007. This officer should be commended for his polite, professional, respectful conduct and for using his discretion appropriately so the council member could complete his official duties. Understand what they're doing. He's trying to make this an argument about a single individual, the cop. Yusuf Salam, the councilman, is not making this about the single individual, he's making this about the macrocosm of transparency. If you are pulled over, the one thing you are supposed to receive is the reason why you were stopped. You were adversely stopped by law enforcement. And if cops aren't willing to do this voluntarily, we now need to have a law that mandates they do so and create levels of transparency for the public. So one is an argument of policy and the, the police, they're making an argument of personality. Let's put them up. Patrick Hendry, Hendry, the New York City Police Benevolent Association president gave a statement, quote, facts matter. And the video doesn't just expose the lies about this incident. It shows the truth about the outstanding professional work of our members. Uh, our members do every day. This council member and every other elected official who baselessly smeared our police officers owe them an apology. Apology for what? The policy is the policy. The council member said, why did you pull me over? Now, if the, if the cop respects the councilman so much, why did he not answer the question? Because if I respect you, and you ask me a question, you will get an answer from me. There's more. Mayor Adams responded to the incident with the following statement, quote, we appreciate Councilmember Salam, the new public safety chair of the city council for bringing this stop to our attention. Did you hear what he just said? Salam is the public safety chairman. That man said, why did you pull me over? The cop gives him no answer. And we're supposed to celebrate the officer as if he respected the chairman of the public safety committee. There's more. We also appreciate and commend the NYPD for following all proper police procedures and being respectful during last night's interaction as the video and vehicle stop report show. The village of Harlem deserves nothing less, and we remain excited to work with our council member, Salam. Quote, we spoke 
And once he had the opportunity to see the video, he saw that the officer showed professionalism. It is, you know, a car stop is stressful for a police officer and it's stressful for the police who are being stopped. And I think he is able to see the video and we spoke. And again, I am excited about being uh, about being a public safety chair. Now, here's here's what the about him being a public safety chair. Here's the thing. Bottom line, the policy is in fact needed because who can pull you over and not state the actual violation that leads to the interaction. This is basic civil rights stuff here. Because if anything proceeds from that, let's say there is illegal activity, a good defense attorney gets everything thrown out because your stop was illegal. It cannot be enforced. And whatever you find beyond that is fruit of a poisonous tree. All right, Mayor Monday, our thoughts. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm interested in, in, in a couple of things. There was a Georgia tag, uh, so you don't know what Georgia law is. Also, you said you pulled him over because of tent. Did you measure the tent? Never measured it. Did you have your tent meter with you? How do you know? We know that all of these, most of these tent cases get thrown out anyway because officers just pull people over. And why not just say, hey, your tent was pretty dark. It looks like it's more than 30% or whatever New York allows. You didn't say that. And I wish... But I'm glad he didn't because the council might might have got hurt, right? So I'm glad he announced himself, but I wonder what it would have been had he not been counseled. Yeah. I wonder what this this idea would have been, what this case would have been. This they, this is this is ridiculous and also scary to me. It also, this is not exemplary work. If you pull me over for a reason, you should articulate that reason even more because you're talking to a council member now. The fact that you're just letting me go, because I apparently broke a law, right? That's why you pulled me over. The fact that you just let me go as soon as I say council member means you're not even interested in law for people who are elected officials, which means you as an officer are doling out two types of law and two types of justice. I pulled you over for a reason. You say you're a councilman. That reason is no longer, uh, it matters no more because I'm just going to let you go. That is a lot yep. wrong with this video. That's right. That's right. Uh, but you see the spin happening. Uh, Mr. Mayor, always a pleasure, dear brother. The good people of Enfield are blessed to have you as their mayor. Tell people how they can follow you. Check out your great work. Yeah, Monday Robinson on YouTube and everywhere on social media. Thanks for having me, Doc. Thank you, my friend. Until next time. Peace. All right, the bullpen is next. Stick and stay. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the bullpen. In the bullpen, much anticipated new book, Dr. Jonathan Metzel, a professor and chair at Vanderbilt University, also author of the best-selling book, Dying of Whiteness. This is the anticipated book, Doc, we have been talking about on the show. Good to have you back on the program, my friend. What we've become, living and dying in a country of arms. We're going to talk about how are you? I am hanging in there. It's really great. This is the first day my book launches tomorrow. This is my first interview for the new book, so I'm really honored. I said, like, let, you know, let's. I really, I really wanted to be talking to you about this. It's really, important. man. It, it, listen, man. It, it's a beautiful piece of work. I know your background and your, um, the nuanced approach you take because it's very research centric, and it helps us understand things in a way that allows us to create solution and remedy. So for those who are wondering what this book is about, and I think they're going to be surprised of some of the um, proclamations you're making here, uh, but give them the, the, the summary of your book. 
Well, I would say there are three main points about the book. It's called What We've Become. And the first is that it's a book about a mass shooting that happened in my hometown, Nashville, Tennessee, in April of 2018. A naked white man burst into a Waffle House in South Nashville, in the basically the black part of town here, um, shot uh, eight uh, young adults of color, uh, four killed, four terribly injured. And it was really, as so many mass shootings are, a, a reckoning in our town about, oh my God, how could this happen here? And I thought this is this is kind of my story in a way. This is the story I, I need to be telling because mass shootings happen so quickly. They're in the news and then we forget them. But for me, there was something bigger going on here. What was the story? How did a naked man with an AR-15, who turned out to be from Illinois, how did he end up in the, in Nashville in a Waffle House full of celebrating young adults of color in the middle of the it was early morning hours after the clubs closed? And so the book is kind of my my long process of tracking down the before and after of that story. And to be honest, it led me to some really unexpected places. Partially, they were the things we know, which are... We have terrible gun laws in this country, but partially it was about a, a bigger question of race and insanity in America and the ways in which our entire system mobilized to protect the, the rights of the naked white gunman in a way. I, I write in the book that he was a reflection of our structural values on the left and on the right. It wasn't just on the right. Um, and so it was really a harrowing five-year case of wanting to do justice for the, for the victims and their families, but also telling a bigger story about how that naked white man with an AR-15 comes to reflect the choices we've made and the choices we don't make. Let me ask you about some cause and effect policy-wise, because there are some things that don't make sense. For example, the majority of gun owners disagree with the NRA on multiple issues. Red flag laws are common sense to most people. Um, background checks are common sense to most people. And then the special interest gets involved and all of a sudden things get confusing for members of Congress because they have a built-in interest to take a certain position that may be adverse to either a gun owners or the majority of Americans. But then you have this response, this reaction, because I think the left is right. So the methodology has been, let's contextualize the, the position here. Provide a contrast, let's do a demonstration, let's protest, let's make it a health paradigm. Let's talk about it in the context of morality and ethics. What say you to how this has been presented from the left? And has the left been right in their presentation of the rebuttal? Well, I'm a liberal doctor, I'm a public health advocate. I think we need stronger gun laws in this country. Uh, I wanna be very clear about that. But I think where this book will be challenging for a lot of readers is that I look in depth at whether those approaches would have stopped the mass shooting that I study and the many other mass shootings that you never hear about because they happen in the quote unquote black part of town or they're in quote unquote gang related killings and stuff like that. And it turns out that the policies we're advocating for, I, I think they're important. Again, I wish we had them, but I just think that they in a way become window dressing for much, much bigger problems. Uh, and so Again, I, I understand. I mean, I've been on the front line of this fight for 15 years. Just doing anything feels like a, a minor, a minor victory. But I will say that we, we've rallied around um, the kinds of regulations, um, government databases that people should enter when they, uh, when they um, 
buy their guns or red flag laws are inviting the police to come into your home um, to assess your relative. And what I argue is those those are not going to build our coalition more broadly if we don't contextualize them with broader investments in making communities safer. And so I just think we've gotten into this, this corner in a way of arguing for red flag laws and background checks, but not saying we need to invest in making communities safer. That's part of my argument. And the other part in the book is that they wouldn't have stopped the shooter in in my, in the in the case I talk about in the book because even though he was honestly psychotic and clearly saying what he was going to do he was seen as an, a white man with a gun somebody whose rights should be protected and so nothing we're doing addresses the bigger problem which is the problem of whiteness what does it mean to be a white man who owns a gun and carries a gun and until we come to terms with that I still think we're going to be divided in in a particular way. So again, I think this is a challenging argument, but I'm, I'm as you say, I'm trying to rethink common knowledge about about what we think we know, and also why we've gotten into this position that feels hopeless and stuck. Yeah, social, ideological, um, political, racial, historical—all of these elements merge to create exactly what we see before us in the material world. Um, one of the dynamics I think you bring to the table that's quite profound. Um, is this strong ability to research and understand the understand the problem from the genesis of it? So we know whiteness is a construct. It is a social construct. It is a, a, a dynamic that was created. Say, all right, white means this, and these are the privileges and benefits, and all of a sudden it created a, a psychology from it. How much of that can be unraveled in our um, or through our political arena, policy, laws? Or is it even possible, Doc? I have two ways of answering that wonderful question, okay. and thank you. And, and they're really, it's kind of the two ways that race plays out in this book. Uh, it's interesting for me because dying of whiteness, it was a relatively tweetable argument. You know, white Americans mm -hmm. are dying from the policies that they, uh, conservative white Americans. It made sense yeah. automatically and deeply. Here, I didn't. I didn't start thinking I was going to write a book that was critical of myself in a way, but that was where my research let me led me. And I think there are two things that are important about race in, in the argument I make. First is that we're losing Black Americans, to be honest, in in, in our framing of gun safety. Um, if you look at who are the fastest growing groups of gun owners in this country, it's often a lot of data is Black women and, and Black men are, are buying buy, buying more guns, and they're less likely to feel that gun safety policies represent their interests. And that, that for me is, um, you know, it's it's tragic, right? Because Black Americans were the strongest supporters of gun control laws for decades. You really could count on, you know, FPU polls way more because Black Americans had seen what guns did to their communities, you know, from the 90s, early 2000s. But again, the policies that we rallied around, um, maybe they were going to regulate guns, but they weren't going to do anything to rebuild communities, to invest in communities, to really rebuild health, information, food, safety, schooling, all these other networks. And so for me, it's it's kind of a, the tragedy on uh, about race. And part of the, I argue in the book is that is that we we advocate for these policies, but we don't pay attention to the bigger structural needs of communities. And that's really gotten us into a tough place. So that's that's 
part of the race argument I make in the book. But the other thing is whiteness is structural also. And so it's just funny how many white gun owners, I interviewed a lot of gun owners for this book. And the white gun owners said the same thing. You know, there are no cops in my neighborhood. I live in rural areas. Um, I'm, one guy told me, quote unquote, I'm, a, I'm my own first responder. And he, and he was right. And so part of the story is guns become the logic through which we conceptualize our safety while the support systems that should govern society collapse around us. And for me, that's, that's the bigger story. We're not going to fix this with policies. We need to rebuild infrastructure. Where's the emphasis? And so let's say you had an opportunity to give a community, you got a pilot project, communities willing to do some things differently. What's your first one, two, three steps to get this done? Well, I have a piece coming out actually tomorrow morning in the Huffington Post that talks about how Democrats need to message about this issue differently. In other words, rushing in and saying more government regulation is not going to convince the purple state voters that we need to convince. So I certainly think it's partially a question of messaging. But I also argue, I, I present in the book a five-part plan of how we can think about guns and gun violence in a much more structural way. And so the things I advocate for, for example, are linking gun safety to entrepreneurialism, um, crafting different narratives about what it means to live in a gun-safe community that isn't just about the opposite of, of what the NRA is convincing, really do a better job of addressing how race and guns go go together. What's the racial story that we really need to, to address? Um, and so I think about it. I mean, I learned a lot interviewing so many gun owners, and they said, make gun safety more relevant to my life. I can't feel it. I can't see it. And so I, I propose all these structural interventions that are basically about making public space safer and investing in public, public space. You understand more than most that we do not operate based on reality, but perceive reality. And so the perception of that reality becomes paramount in how we interact. And so messaging is a presentation of reality. Uh, Democrats sometimes can be all over the place. And, and then they can surprise you by being ultra conservative yeah. on some things, right? Uh, you're not saying, Doc, that Congress or policy and politics and law, they have no place here. You're just saying the emphasis may need to transform, correct? I'm trying to understand how we got here, right? Okay. And Part of the story is I've been at this for 15 years and people are, are really fighting an uphill battle. But we're also seeing, I think we're also seeing gun laws fall across the entire country. We're seeing more people buy guns, more people carry guns. We're seeing the Supreme Court overturn even New York's gun laws. And so we're advocating for stopping shootings, which is more important. But I also think that um, we're just in a position now where because 20 years ago, we didn't realize that we needed to control the courts to, to implement our agenda. We lost the structural yeah. argument. And so I do argument, I do argue we need to figure out how to get the courts back. And what I show is that advocating for more background checks and red flag laws, I don't think is going to get us there. It's certainly not going to get us there in Tennessee where I'm living. That's, that's an interesting dynamic. So let me pose it this way. If you have less opportunity to obtain weaponry, because right now you can have unlimited guns in America. That, that's, that's ridiculous. Um, a lot of counties, you can't have unlimited cars, but you can have unlimited guns. You have unlimited guns, unlimited ammunition. And because of this, because of the availability of guns um, and the uh, trade interaction, meaning I can literally trade with someone and not tell a soul or do a private gun sale, 
um, and not report it to anybody. Because of these rules that govern guns in America, uh, it allows for more access to guns. And, and I bring the example of other nations that they have violent programming. People say, well, it's violent programming on TV. Well, but they don't have the kind of mass shootings that we have. Um, and that's typically because they don't have these laws that say pro-gun culture. Because I think law plays a part, obviously, in the influence of our societal norming. And societal norming plays a factor in how we think about a thing. And it could work the other way around. And that's what you're proposing. You're proposing that it works the other way around. I'm just saying, if 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 we're successful at doing it in, in this way, reframing, reshaping, but the powers that be still have this awesome power called law uh, and government, they're, and, and they're influencing on the other side. It's almost as if we come to a stalemate, dear brother. And, and I'm posing that as an open question. I debate this at length in the book. I know we're just about out of time. So I'll just say, I think there are two points that are relevant. One is that Democrats have protested around a health paradigm, but the Republicans have organized around a power paradigm. That's kind of what I look at in the book. So we have protested again for health laws, which are vital. We urgently need them, but it's hard to do because we didn't have a counter to an adversary that was seating the courts with people who That's were right. not willing to compromise. So partially we didn't pay attention enough to the courts. But the other story of the book is that this, this naked Mike man with an AR-15, he was in Illinois and he shouldn't have had a gun. And then he just drove to Tennessee. He drove to Tennessee to commit the mass shooting like Kyle Rittenhouse and many other people. And so in a way, when we have this patchwork of, of laws, and also you can go from one state to the next state, and you go from being someone who shouldn't have a gun to someone yeah. who's seen as a patriot, whose rights should be protected, um, then then we're just we're not gonna solve it. We need to really figure out that that issue of, of how we can how we how we can have people look differently at white gun owners who are crossing state lines with AR-15s, which is kind of the metaphor of the book. Yeah. Man, I appreciate you not only presenting a way to reset the conversation, because obviously it's not working in the current conversation. And trusting the research enough, because this is what we have to do as researchers. We have to trust the research enough to stand on the research conclusions yeah. and present them as they are. And I'm very proud of you for doing that. For those who are watching and they would like to purchase the book, maybe even book you for a tour. How can they do so? Just go to my website, uh, jonathanmetzel.com, www.jonathanmetzel.com. And I've all the information about the book and the tour and really everything starts tomorrow. We're having a big event in Nashville with uh, the mayor and a bunch of other people and, and the you know people who are really affected by this shooting and then, and then working from there. Thank you. Um, Thank you for all that you do, uh, Dr. Messel. We'll have you back very soon. Sounds good. All right. Remember, take care of yourself, take care of each other, take care of the planet. Remember, the truth is always indisputable.